As we begin our study this morning, and as we look at this verse in Matthew chapter 23, and verse 23, Jesus begins by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and then he calls them hypocrites. And the first reason that he calls them hypocrites from the things that we'll discuss this morning, he said, You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. What does all that mean? Well, first of all, the word mint there, if you look in the original Greek word, it actually is translated as sweet smelling. In other words, you're talking about something that is in the kitchen. For example, you're talking about a sweet smelling mint leaf. Okay, number two, what about anise? You know, that word actually means dill. You know, like a dill pickle, something that you would have for flavor. Watch what they were doing. Oh, they were so meticulous. They were very meticulous in tithing, and they would actually tithe of mint leaves. They would tithe of the flavored dill, and they would also tithe a 10% of what is called cumin. And cumin actually is a very small herb. Now, a little background about Old Testament law, and I'll be brief about this. Under the Old Testament law, God instructed his people, obviously, to give one-tenth of all of their crops. And we understand that. The governmental structure at the time was that of a theocracy. Now, what's that? What is a theocratic government? A theocracy is a form of government that is run or governed by priests that do so in the name of or for God. And the commonwealth of Israel was actually a theocracy from Moses all the way until Saul was elected to be king. So at the time of this writing, we are talking about something that is, is referring back to the days of tithing. Something else, too. I know that the religious world, the denominational world today still has, they use the phrase, tithing. In fact, they call it tithing and offerings. But the word tithing actually means a tenth. That's what the de definition of the word actually is. And nowhere in the New Testament are we required to give a tenth of all that we have or a tenth of our income. What we're required to do, and we're going to do that in just a little while, we give a free will offering that which we have purposed in our heart as we have been prospered. So let us give. So it's not a percentage. It's the heart that's being judged in the New Testament. Now, going back to the old law, because Jesus was still living under the old law. And we talk about the idea of tithing and what did God actually say? In Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, this is actually what was really required. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's. And the end of that passage actually says, it is holy to the Lord. What else? How about Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 22? You shall truly tithe, get this, of all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Did God say anything about kitchen spices? Did God say anything at all about things that were, are used to season food? Why no? He didn't say that at all. Are you kind of getting the picture of what Jesus is talking about? I read one scholar. You know what he called them? These Pharisees and scribes that Jesus was talking to? He called them wooden literalists. I don't know what that means, but he called them wooden literalists. 
And what they would do is they took the command to give a tenth or tithe. They would take it to a ridiculous extreme. And they would even have kitchen pots and they would grow what? They'd grow some mint leaves in there. You know what they would do? Oh, wait a minute. Got a tithe. Got a tithe. One, two, nine for me, one for God. Oh, what about this dill over here? It'd be the same thing as a pickle. Over here, you got dill. You got a flavor there. And, uh, nine for me, one for God. What about this over here? What about this tiny little herb? And by the way, it was a tiny little herb used for seasoning. Let me get that out. And what they would do meticulously, and by the way, so everybody could see, they would take nine for me and one for God. That's what they would do. They took it to the absurd. Jesus was talking about something different. John MacArthur actually said it this way in his commentary. He said, these men magnify the insignificant and they minimize the essential. There are things that are ridiculous. There are things that are really insignificant. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, the idea of this, though. Even though on, the, on outwardly, Jesus was saying to them, outwardly, it appears that they're pious. It appears that they're doing a great thing, right? But what the Lord is going to say is, no, wait a minute. You're rotten on the inside. You didn't fix the inside. That is the entire theme of what he's talking about. The difference between how somebody is on the outside and what they really are on the inside. And all the examples we're going to use in this sermon deal with that very thing, the outside and the inside. And what we're going to find is it doesn't matter what we are on the outside. If we're rotten on the inside, it's not enough. It's not good enough. And you know what you're called if that is the case? He calls them hypocrites. All right. They did the things that they would get credit for. You know, when I was a kid growing up, you know what my dad used to say? I remember I would go do something. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, sometimes when you're a kid, you, you want the immediate gratification or satisfaction of someone giving you praise when you do something. And I remember my father used to tell me this all the time. He used to say, you know, the greatest things that we ever do, and if you want to ever judge what you do and the significance of it, he said the greatest things that we do in our life, we do when we don't get any credit. In other words, what would you do if no one was watching? That's kind of what I think about these Pharisees. What would they do when no one was watching, when they wouldn't get any credit? When they would get the credit, guess what they did? Nine for me, one for God. See, even the kitchen spices we pay tithes on. But then he says this. There's something else. Watch this. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And then he says what the weightier matters are. He said justice, mercy, and faith. You cannot exist as a faithful child of God without justice, mercy, and faith. Now, that's what he says. He says you are neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Interesting about the word weightier. That word weightier is a rabbinical word. What do I mean by that? That's a fancy way of saying things that are governed by rabbinic tradition. Okay? In other words, there was what God required, and then the rabbis, which were Jewish scholars, rabbinic tradition, based upon their own codification of the Jews, they would have other things that they would add. 
kind of like carrying your bed on the Sabbath, right? Well, you know what? A rabbinical word was the word weightier. And what they would say is, and God didn't, what they would say is, under the old law of Moses, there are things, for example, that are really not that big a deal, but then there are some other commands by God that they called weightier. You know what one of them was? Circumcision. You know what another one was? Keeping the Sabbath. And that's why they hated Jesus. He said, I'm the son of God. They couldn't stand it. And the way he dealt with the Sabbath. And Jesus said, I'm greater than the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And they hated him for it. You know why? Because based upon rabbinic tradition, a rabbinical word, they called that a weightier thing. You know what Jesus says? Let me tell you what the weightier thing is. It ain't Sabbath. It's this. Justice. Mercy. And faith. You've neglected those things. You know, Jesus didn't just pick these out of the air. And this is nothing new. You probably know the scripture. It's in the book of Micah. And this is what the book of Micah says. So Jesus didn't just grab these three things out of the air. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, notice, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Do you see that? He said, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice. What did Micah say? Micah said, do justly. They were not like that. They were not just people. They were unjust people. They were unholy people. They did bad things to people. How about this? What about mercy? Well, Micah says you got to love mercy. They were unmerciful. I got to say, just as a little aside here, we need to be really careful sometimes when we don't have mercy for someone else. Because I'm haunted by the words of Matthew chapter 7, misunderstood by the religious world. Religious world says, don't judge. That's not what he said. What he said is, the manner in which you judge, it shall be judged unto you again. So if I don't have any mercy in my heart, if I have no forgiveness in my heart, the scary thing is, and I need forgiveness, and so do you, the scary thing is I'm not going to have forgiveness from God. If I don't forgive others and have mercy in my heart, I'm going to tell you, don't fall into the category, please, of being a Pharisee and thinking it could never happen to you. Don't do that. What about this? Walking humbly with your God. You know what that is? That's faith. You see that? Were they people of faith? Nope. Sure weren't. They, were, they followed the works of the law. They judged everything by their own merit and works of the law. Jesus says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, then verse 20, uh, the end of this verse, verse 23. Because I got to say, you know what people do? They misquote this verse. And you know what they say? See, Jesus even said, you don't have to obey any kind of commands. Just have this. Just have justice, mercy, and faith. That's not what he said. What he said is this, the very next line. I didn't make this up. It's what the Lord said. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, you still have to obey the law. But you got to add these weightier matters and don't do without them. You have to do it all. 
Now, the Lord was not saying what you got to do is you should have counted out the seeds and the seasoning and all of that. That's not what he meant. What he meant is you should have kept the laws about the tithe. That was a command of God and you needed to keep that. But along the way, while doing it, you should have not neglected the weightier matters of the law. You should have done it all. That's what he said. Sometimes people quote that verse and say, you know what? We don't have to obey anything. All we got to do is have faith, love, mercy, justice. It's not what he said. Keep the weightier matters and also give attention to the proper matters of tithing is what he was saying. And then in verse 23, in uh, verse 24, he says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow the camel. That's from the New King James. And by the way, that's exactly how it renders it in the original. And I have to tell you that in my life, I've kind of misunderstood that. And from the King James, it actually says it a little bit differently. In the King James, it says, you strain at a gnat. Now, if you strain at something, to me, in my mind, maybe not you, but to me, it sounds as though you are straining or re you are pushing back away from, I don't know, you're straining against it. But that's not what Jesus was saying. He is continuing on the thought. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, and what did you do by counting all the spices but neglecting the weightier things of the law? What you've done is you have strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. All right, let's go further. What's the word strain mean? What does it mean? The word strain comes from the Greek word that means to filter. And incidentally, in the Old Testament, the smallest unclean creature was a gnat. Let's talk about unclean creatures so we get kind of some perspective here. In Leviticus 11 and 42, whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You know what the smallest one was? A gnat. You know what they would do? I'll tell you in just a minute. Let's talk about the biggest one. Let's talk about the biggest one. Leviticus 11 and 4. And I'm going to tell you what they would do about the gnat. In Leviticus 11 and verse 4. Nevertheless, these you should not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves, the camel, because it chews the cud and does not have cloven hooves, is unclean unto you. So the two things, the smallest and the biggest, that were unclean to a Jew was a gnat and the biggest was a camel. The Lord said by neglecting the weightier matters of the law, you know what you're doing? You are straining out the gnat and you're swallowing a camel. Now, a little background on that. A little background. I read this. They used to strain their beverages. And incidentally, when they would make wine, when they would do that, they'd stomp on the grapes and do all that. And they would take the fruit of the vine, they would take the juice, the beverage, the liquid. And obviously, they, don't, they didn't have things that we have in our society about cleanliness and being able to keep things sterile and all that. So you know what happens sometimes? Sometimes bugs flew into the juice. Okay? The smallest of which was a gnat. And they knew, wait a minute, we can't have any gnats in there. So what they would do, they would take a straining cloth. And they would place it over top of that. And they would pour 
into or through the straining cloth in the juice so they can make sure they didn't swallow one of those tiny little unclean guys. Okay? That's what they would do before they drank it. John MacArthur said this, though. I thought this was rather interesting. So you have all these guys straining beverages, and then John MacArthur said this. He said, But some fastidious Pharisees drank their wine through clenched teeth in order to filter out any impurities and then pick the gnat out of their teeth. So in other words, going the extra mile, let's strain through the straining cloth and then drink the drink like this and drink it and let the liquid go through. Keep your teeth together so you're double straining. Don't let the gnat down, then pick the gnat out of the teeth. Going through all of that, but having their priorities inverted, out of whack, confused. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're afraid to eat the tenth mint leaf, but you're allowing hypocrisy, dishonesty, cruelty, and greed in your life. But that's not all. This is incredible, but that's not all. Verse 25. He says, once again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Why? Because you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. The word dish in the original comes from an interesting Greek word, and it has to do with a plate that was used to serve delicacies. Now, you clean the outside of the dish is what he's saying. Oh, you polish the outside of that thing. Man, you got the outside of that cup just shining like crazy. But what you have put inside, you got by how? Extortion. In other words, here's the example. Somebody comes to a banquet and you serve them. Oh, you got a beautiful shiny cup. But inside is filled with things that they're going to eat or drink or whatever that you stole. That you've extorted from somebody else. Dishonesty. That's the example here about what he's saying. In other words, your ministry looks pious. Oh, it looks pious. The whole thing is based on taking advantage of other people. Making merchandise of others. Now, Jesus is teaching here that while these religious leaders are concerned with ceremonies, they make them appear to be pure. They are impure in the heart. And I'll tell you something, folks. Our life on the outside has to reflect our being on the inside. They didn't do that. They appeared to be one way on the outside. But Jesus did what we can't do. He called them down on it. Now you're rotten inside. That's what you are. And he told them that in this final sermon. Incidentally, sometimes people say, oh, don't, don't ever preach anything negative. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When we preach things that are negative, when we preach against error, please hear me. Please hear me. We have to do so and season our words with salt and do so in a productive manner. We don't ever want to use the pulpit as a weapon or be mean and hateful. But I'm going to tell you, there are times when we have to stand for the truth and preach that which is right. And when we do, we have to preach it straight, but we have to preach it, as the Bible says, and season our words with salt. Speak the truth in love. Some people say, don't ever preach one negative thing at all. 
Just preach Jesus, and that's it. Do you know who's preaching this sermon in Matthew 23? It's the Lord himself. Let me just ask you. You think this is harsh? I don't think I can get away with this if I did it. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and lay them out. That's the epitome of love doing that. That is the greatest love ever demonstrated by anyone was Jesus. That's what Jesus said in the entire chapter, chapter 23. If we get things right on the inside, you've heard me say this before. If we get things right on the inside, it will automatically translate into things right on the outside. If, however, we cultivate only the outward facade, please get this, the outward facade... That is an actor. That is a hypocrite. Did you hear what I said? Cultivate the facade on the outside. Now, I'm going to tell you, you've heard me say people make mistakes and they get blamed for being a hypocrite. That doesn't make them a hypocrite. That is true. But what I just said is when you cultivate a facade and you never really intended to be that person, that's a hypocrite. That's a play actor. That's somebody doing something or behaving in a way that... They appear to be one way, and they're, they're not. But, you know, people look on the outside, and the Pharisees did that. They looked to the outside. You know what the Lord looks on? He looks on the heart. What about this passage right here, 1 Samuel 16 and 7? But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And one of the most sobering things that I have to come to the realization about in my life is the Lord knows my heart and I can't hide it. I can't hide my heart. I can't. I just can't. Jesus continues with this thought. Next verse, 26. Notice. He says, blind Pharisees, hypocrites. There's that word again. And then he says... First, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Now, picture it this way. I think everybody here will understand. Okay? If I got a coffee mug, okay, and it's dirty inside and out, and I take a sponge or whatever and I hold it up and I dip the sponge in water and I buff the outside, I've done nothing to the inside at all. If I am first cleansing the outside only, I'm not doing anything for the inside. If, however, I take that coffee mug and I got the sink there and it's full of suds and nice hot water, I submerge the cup in that water, it goes on the inside. Guess what? I've taken care of the inside. It automatically takes care of the outside. That's what the Lord meant. Cleanse the inside and the outside will be fixed. Fix it on the inside. Wash the inside of the cup. And the, and the outside will be fixed. Then he says this. This is really an amazing passage in verse 27. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. And then he said this. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, please follow this. He says, you are also guilty of deception. And I'm going to use the word and then I'm going to prove it to you by the example that he gives. You are guilty of contaminating others. 
you're guilty of contaminating others. You're doing so by deception. And you know, very sadly, that fills the religious world today. Deception, and it contaminates all of those that come in touch or contact with that false teacher. Now listen to this. Jesus condemns these Pharisees for spiritually con contaminating everyone that they touch. In other words, you are not what you claim to be. And the example he uses is whitewashed tombs. What does that mean? Now, Terry's a painter. I was one. Okay. 20, uh, I don't know, 27 years ago, whatever, 25 years ago, six years ago, I came in the painting trade. And one of the fads back then was whitewashed cabinets. And we would even, and one of, the, one of the fads was red oak wood, and then you take a white platinum stain, and you, they called it whitewash. You would whitewash the outside. And if you add white platinum stain to a red cabinet, you got pink. That was a huge fad a number of years ago. So that's what I think about when I think about whitewash. But whitewash in this passage is not platinum stain. Whitewash in this passage means that they went out to these tombs and they smeared lime powder on them. Lime powder. Now there was a reason. Every spring after the early rain ceased. And you know what rain does? Rain would wash away things like lime powder. And by the way, it was about the 15th of a dar. You know what that is? That's the first part of March. So every first part of March after the rains, you know what they do? They'd look out over Jerusalem and they would find a bunch of houses, a bunch of walls, and most importantly, tombs out there with no whitewash. You know why? Because the rain washed it away. So here they come. They got the lime powder in hand. And they go out and smear it all over these tombs. In fact, I also read that sometimes the whitewash was smeared on caves and limestone tombs for those that were more prominent. And they did so for preparation of the Passover. And let me tell you why. When people came to Jerusalem for the Passover, they came from everywhere. Now picture this. Hundreds, thousands, I don't know, people came to Jerusalem for the time of the Passover. The people that lived there in Jerusalem, they wanted to create something that was beautiful. You see this? Appear beautiful outwardly. So instead of having these old nasty looking graves out there, they would go to these tombs and they would smear lime powder on it. So when you walked into Jerusalem, oh, the beauty of it, it was all white. I read one scholar that said you can find white sepulchers that dot the mountains and hillsides all throughout. When you came into Jerusalem during this time. But that's not the main reason they did it. That's not the main reason. That's not the main reason that they did so. They actually went out. And they put whitewash on the tombs. So people that came to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Would not inadvertently or accidentally touch the tomb. And be ceremonially unclean for seven days. That's why. They're going to the Passover. They don't want to be unclean. So they would mark it with sometimes the entire tomb 
being whitewashed. Other times I read, you know what they did? They actually painted bones on the grave. White bones. So people that would walk by, oh, I got to stay away from that. I better not touch that grave. Okay? Now, and be defiled. I didn't just grab that. Notice this passage here from the Old Testament. Numbers 19 and 16. Whoever in the field opens, whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. That's the reason right there. So they painted the sepulchers. Now, that's the example that he's using. He's using that as an example. When you came into Jerusalem, they were beautiful. They were clean. There were white tombs everywhere, dazzling in the sun. But they weren't what they appeared to be. You know why? You know what they were? They were just a grave. I'm going to tell you, have you. I would imagine in your lifetime, you've been called some names. You've been called some things. I've been called some things. And... What if the Lord called you a tomb? Because the only thing inside of you is dead men's bones. What if the Lord, looking at my life, said, You know what? You've got this facade. You're beautiful on the outside in the eyes of others, but I know you. No, I know you. You're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. That's what he told them. Now, inside are full of dead man's bones. Now, the next verse, verse 28. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous. You appear to be righteous men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the example that he uses. He uses the tomb. Just like whitewashing the tomb on the outside, what do you got on the inside? Dead man's bones. What about you? What about you? He says, I'm telling you this because here's the example. On the outside, you appear righteous. That's a whitewashed tomb. But inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's dead man's bones. You're just a, you're just a grave. You're dead inside. And by the way, the word lawless means to disregard the law of God. Make no mistake about it, folks, and don't let anyone talk you out of it. Just because we are supposed to be those of justice, mercy, love, peace, faith, and all of that, as the weightier matters, it doesn't mean that we are not required to follow the laws of God. He said you're lawless. And that simply means you disregard the laws of God. Anybody who touches you, here's his point, is contaminated. And you know, very sadly, there are many false teachers doing the very same thing. They're contaminating innocent people. But then the last one, the last one that he uses, these false spiritual leaders are cursed for pretension. Pretension. What I'm saying is pretending to be so much better than everybody else. You know, if you go all the way back to when Satan and a third of the host of heaven were cast out of heaven, God has always hated pride. God is not okay with me acting or thinking that I'm better than Dave Morgan. I don't. Just use that example. He's not okay with that. He's not okay with that at all. God is never okay for us to be filled with pretension. The last thing he blasts them with is this. You're guilty of all of the things I just said, but there's more. 
There's more. You sit in a position or a place that you act as though you are better than other people, especially those of the past. Notice what happens. God always hates pride. So he says, you appear outwardly to appear righteous as righteous men. Inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Then he says this, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Because why? Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. What does that mean? Okay, I had to do a little reading for that. Did you know that at that time, what they would do is it was a big deal for Jews to do this. Men that had already died. Let me just call them heroes of the past. It might be something like Terry when Terry's preaching his series on uh, heroes of faith. In other words, sepulchers or tombs or graves of men that have lived before that were great men. Now, this is what Jesus says. Of all things, he says this. Oh, you are great at this, by the way. Still a hypocrite. You're great at this. You build tombs of the prophets. In other words, you build these monuments for those that have already died. Of the righteous. He's referring to the practice of rebuild, rebuilding in remembrance those things for past heroes. In fact, I read this. That even today, even today, on the lower slope of the Mount of Olives, even today... You can find tombs that are built in honor of the prophets. And if you've been there and seen that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Robertson said it this way. This is exactly what you find today. And it's when Jesus was speaking. Notice what Robertson said. The tombs in the Kidron Valley that are now named in honor of Zechariah, Absalom, and Jehoshaphat, for example, they were all built at the same time that Jesus said this. So Jesus is saying, oh, you hypocrites. Oh, you're great at building these monuments. You're great at that. Yeah, you're great at that. Really big at lifting up the heroes from the past. Lifting them up with memorials and monuments. Okay, And then he even said this. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We're better than them. We'd have never done that. We'd have never done that. I've heard people say, I don't understand how the apostles forsook Jesus. I, could, I would have never done it. I'd have been right in there. Yeah, no, you weren't. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. First of all, you can't know what you would ever do in a situation you've never been in. But no, you wouldn't. It was prophesied Jesus would do it alone. So you would have done it too. If Peter can mess up, I guarantee you Frank Brancato can. Yeah, that was a special man there. I am not. What I'm saying is this. You know what they were saying? They, he says, oh, you built these monuments for all these heroes in the past. And that, but you sit back and say, oh, oh I'd have never done what they did. My fathers did. I would have never done a thing to the prophets of old that were killed by my forefathers. I would have never even thought of it. Like they're holier than thou, or it would be beyond them to do that. The, pre the pretense here of ugly spiritual pride. Great at building monuments. Great at honoring men in the past and claiming to be better than their fathers. They would have never done that. You know what Jesus says? Here's a direct hit. And I'm almost finished. But here is a direct hit. And you know the Lord never beat around the bush. He made direct hits. And he does it right here. Amazing verse. You know what he says? Therefore, 
you are what? Witnesses against yourself. You know why? It's the idea of like father, like son. They were plotting to kill the greatest prophet ever. Yeah, they were plotting to kill the greatest prophet ever. They were bragging and boasting. We would have never killed those prophets of old like our fathers did. No, we were better than that. Jesus said, you know what you are? You're a witness against yourself. Why? Because the plot was already in place. The plan was already in place. They had to get rid of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's a next verse that I love. Because you've heard me preach. How many times? You have heard me preach that Jesus Christ was no man's victim. You've heard me say it. You have heard me say that in great detail many times. That he was totally in control. We go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He commands them to leave these alone and all that. We know all that, right? This is the first place I can see that it started. Watch this. In verse 32, he says, Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. What's fill up mean? It means this. It means do it. You are already, your witnesses against yourself because you're plotting to kill the Son of God. So you know what I'm going to tell you? Do it. That's what the word fill up means. It is a, it is a word that is commanding to them. It is emphatic in the sentence, meaning he is commanding them. Do it. Now who's got the power and who's in control? He said do it. Do it. Scheming to kill the greatest prophet. And you know, when you look at his life from then on, he's totally in control. When he's before Pilate, Pilate says, don't you understand what I can do against you? He said, you know what? You wouldn't have that authority if it wasn't for my father. Jesus says that no man takes my life. I lay it down myself. All the things in which he did, he commanded them and orchestrated all of them to do exactly what God's plan was. And Jesus saw it to the very end. And right here, right now, do you remember when I said the reason that I wanted to preach this series is what happened from Sunday when they said Hosanna to Friday when they said crucify him. Thursday and Friday, crucify him. Well, I'm going to tell you. He laid them out pretty good in this sermon. And then you know what he said? You are the fulfillment. You are the full measure of the Father's guilt. You are. So do it. Scholars tell us that perhaps there was nothing that happened on Wednesday. In fact, some scholars say that maybe the triumphal entry happened on Monday so that there was something that happened every day. We don't need to know that. We've proven that the triumphal entry happened on Sunday. I believe that. And if that means there was nothing recorded on Wednesday, so what? So what? But we're nearing the, we're coming right to the end of Tuesday now. And this is the sermon that they heard. The last sermon Jesus preached. I'm finished this morning. Thank you so much for your kind listening. I hope something was said that was both edifying and encouraging to you. As always is the case, my hope and prayer is that it would cause you to have a greater appreciation for Jesus and for all that he has done for us in our life and be better in the future than we've been in days gone by.